Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in for Emma Ashford while she's out on maternity leave is John Glazer. Hi, John. Hi. Today's topic is China's most recent authoritarian turn. The crisis in Hong Kong is piping along at a full boil, and the leaked documents about China's detention of uh, a million Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities have revealed that the state of mass surveillance and social control in China is absolutely chilling. Here to discuss the situation in China, what it means and where it's going is Michael Swain, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Trevor. Happy uh, to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Um, so let's let's dig right in. Um, it, you know, China's never been an, a non-authoritarian place, but the recent events um, seem to indicate that things have gotten sharply worse of late. Um, from a big picture perspective, would you agree with that? Um, and why is it happening now? Well, yes. I mean, I, I would agree in general that within China, the regime uh, under the Chinese Communist Party and under Xi Jinping, the general secretary since 2013, has become uh, more ideological, more party-oriented, more party control, more intervention by the party in various areas of society. Uh, and it's become, in, in some ways, um, more suspicious of the outside and of the West and the United States in particular, and of course has taken a turn in foreign policy towards being more what you would call assertive in a variety of different areas. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why this has happened. Uh, I think a lot of them are domestic. Uh, some of them are not. Um, on the domestic side, it's, I think, in part a response to the consequences of decades of reform and opening up. Uh, that entire process, which has led to enormous growth for China, raising of living standards, opening up of Chinese citizens to what's going on in the world, et cetera, all of that has led to uh, both good and bad things. It's allowed China to recognize where it stands in the world and what it needs to do to compete and, and get ahead and develop itself. But it's also brought on lots of corruption. Uh, the CCP regime has always been, to some extent, corrupt. Uh, but under the reforms, I think it's gotten a lot worse. And it's also opened up Chinese people, Chinese thought to a lot of very heterogeneous ideas. So there's a lot of things that percolate around in Chinese society. And the Chinese regime has always been very sensitive to the influence of outside forces in China, particularly when China looks or is developing into a very challenging situation or looks weak in some way. There's always been this real sensitivity to foreign intervention to try to sort of weaken or undermine China. So all of those things, I think, are playing a role. The example of the colored revolutions that occurred uh, in Europe, the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, that goes back some time, but that kind of sense of insecurity that the regime developed as a result of that, and when you add in the corruption and et cetera. And then finally, I guess you could say that in the most recent period, you've also got the issue of the position of the United States itself, which has become in its own way more um, adversarial in its approach to China. And I think that has also you know, sort of tightened uh, concern within China to strengthen the role of the Communist Party and, and its influence over a variety of different areas. One of the more discreet 
uh, issues of China's domestic authoritarian turn is its treatment of minorities or territories uh, that sort of where its rule is challenged, like in Hong Kong. Can you talk about China's treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, the situation in Hong Kong, how Beijing is dealing with it, how you see things moving forward? Yes, well, these are these are particular areas where, of course, China has taken a very, uh, I would say, repressive bent in its handling of certain problems, uh, and it really is, I think, appalling in some regard regarding what's going on in the Xinjiang area as well. Uh, but it's it's a response and overreaction, I think to the insecurity, again, that I think exists in, in the Chinese regime in a variety of different areas, and its sense that the potential for terrorist acts has increased. I'm talking about Xinjiang now. And that there have indeed been several thousand terrorist incidents in China in recent years. They began to get really serious over the last uh, three or four years. And uh, if you've seen the recent um, New York Times issuing of documents that had been leaked on this whole Xinjiang affair, which appear to be authentic. Some people say they're not because they're not grammatical Chinese, etc. I can't really say as to whether or not they are, but they sound as if they could very well be authentic. And there it shows very clearly that you had uh, Xi Jinping basically draw a line in the sand and say, enough already. Um, this kind of terrorist action, which has resulted in the deaths of not thousands and thousands of people, but significant numbers of people uh, in main, you know, central China cities and places like that, not all in, in the Xinjiang or minority areas, that this requires a very harsh response. And he has basically drawn from the kind of Leninist, if not Maoist playbook in trying to respond to that. And he's put in place an individual who was in Tibet uh, be fired before the Xinjiang, uh, recent Xinjiang policies. And he had clamped down in Tibet to try to control uh, resistance there. And now he's doing the same thing and leading the uh, effort in Xinjiang. And it's consisted of these camps. Uh, the Chinese call them re-education and training centers. But of course, they're involuntary. And they have, you know, compulsory placed up to a million, maybe more than a million, some people say several million Uyghurs in there for basically propaganda and brainwashing sessions. And I mean, this really is a throwback to the Maoist period. It's what is, I think, the huge blot on the Chinese regime's successes to date. And as I tell Chinese officials all the time when I'm when I'm speaking with them, uh, you have no idea how how negative an impact this is having in attitudes, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world, that you've resorted to this draconian effort to try to deal with a real problem, but one that doesn't, I think, require this kind of overreach and overreaction. And so the Chinese government is legitimately, I think, being criticized in various areas for this, for this behavior. Now, what we can do about it and change it is another matter. Because it's a it's a very challenging issue, and we can talk about the general question of how do you deal with human rights abuses in China, if you like. But let me just say a word about Hong Kong. The Hong Kong situation is really a tragic one in 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 a lot of ways, and there it's not nearly as simple, clear cut, relatively simple at least, as the Xinjiang situation might be. I think we're where we are in Hong Kong because of mistakes that have been made by all parties. Uh, including Beijing, including the Hong Kong government, and including the um, pro-democracy movement. 
Uh, it, it goes back to a series of actions that were taken in the early 2000s, which were um, efforts by Beijing to establish some degree of greater regularity in its interactions with the Hong Kong government in, in managing certain types of things. And then, of course, in moving forward towards a greater degree of suffrage within Hong Kong, which is part of the whole basic law and the joint declaration, the understanding with the United Kingdom that was reached at the time. And many people believe that Beijing was, was putting too strong a hand on this process of moving towards greater democratization to try and limit it. And so you had a response on the part of the Hong Kong uh, pro-democracy movement. But it was a response that I think at various times was really an overreaction. It was an effort to try and move too far too fast. And it was an effort to try and really achieve goals which I think ultimately are unachievable uh, in some ways for Hong Kong. It is not going to be an open uh, Western-style liberal democratic society where it's only one man, one vote, and whoever gets elected gets elected and Beijing has nothing to say about it. Beijing will continue to have influence over the nominees for the most senior positions in the Hong Kong government while hopefully supporting continuation of rule of law and the other things that have been enshrined in the, in the basic law. The problem now, however, is that you've gotten both sides that have kind of dug in on a series of, of issues and, and are sort of non-negotiable. The pro-democracy movement has been heavily influenced by, I would say, the more radical wing of it, which is, is saying that, no, we need to have um, acquiescence by the Hong Kong government and Beijing to our five demands um, regarding Hong Kong and nothing short of that. We won't compromise one bit. And uh, Beijing just has to accept this and we'll keep on demonstrating until they do. Uh, and then Beijing's position, or at least the Hong Kong government's initially, was to be somewhat conciliatory, but then to draw a line and say, we're not going to go any further until we get a cessation to the violence, which resulted from the lack of, of the Hong Kong government's uh, acceptance of the five demands. And so, you, you know, we're, we are where we are now. And you don't have a a leadership in Hong Kong on the pro-democracy side that is really clear, authoritative, and has the backing of the Hong Kong population because it's really amorphous kind of a movement. And in my opinion, the Hong Kong Democratic parties have really been missing in action on this. They really have abrogated their responsibility of really trying to step up and strike out and, and establish a platform for the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement that is reasonable, that would would meet some of the needs that the Hong Kong government and Beijing have to keep China, you know, sovereign in Hong Kong. And they're not doing that. Yeah. So what what if you were advising the pro-democracy folks there, what is a reasonable set of goals for the pro-democracy movement? I think a reasonable set of goals for the pro-democracy movement is certainly to to require that the Hong Kong government not pass these more onerous laws like the extradition law and other ones that, that really can give uh, an opportunity for abuse in various ways, that there stop, that there stop in fact, uh, actions by Beijing to take people out of Hong Kong, which has happened, uh, some dissidents and such, that that has to be stopped. There has to be a reaffirmation by the uh, Beijing government of the one country, two systems model with the high level of autonomy that Hong Kong was guaranteed under that model and a clear definition of what that means in terms of the election process. Now, that I think needs to go forward. But 
in all of this, I think what there needs to be is there needs to be some serious thought given to establishing a reform commission, a commission made up of a broad, wide spectrum of groups within Hong Kong that represent all of the groups from A to Z, except for those that advocate, you know, open advocate some kind of agitation for the independence of Hong Kong from and the separation from China, because that will not carry. I mean, I don't think that that those groups can be uh, represented in in that sort of commission. But short of that, um, I think all other interest groups should be in there, and they should cover the gamut of the issues that are outstanding now between a lot of the Hong Kong citizenry and the government. And that runs from not just politics and democracy and voting, but all the way over to economic reforms and various social issues that are a major issue for Hong Kong today. The economic situation for a lot of people in Hong Kong today is very bad. And it's in, bad in part because the Hong Kong tycoons, the few families in Hong Kong that have controlled most of the wealth uh, there have really controlled a lot of the economy, a lot of the income and, and job opportunities there. And Beijing has been very content with that kind of situation because the Hong Kong tycoons have basically supported Beijing's agenda. And I think that has to change. Yeah. Color me skeptical, but I foresee zero progress for the pro-democracy movement. I, I mean, when you contrast you know, Hong Kong's situation against what has been happening under Xi Jinping, I mean, Recentralization, rooting out rivals—you know, sometimes under the name of anti-corruption or what have you—but uh, you know, I just don't see democracy and the Communist Party being uh, partners. And I—I I mean, if I were living in Hong Kong, I would leave because I—I I just don't see the long run tilting towards towards Hong Kong's pro-democracy group. Well, I think it, a lot of it really depends on. How far you, well, how you envision that democracy emerging? I mean, you're, I agree with you. There's not going to be the full Western-style democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, China's unlikely to, to agree to that, especially given the decline in U.S.-China relations that's happening. But Hong Kong is an important example for the world and for China. If it is badly mismanaged uh, in the way in which uh, certain policies are being implemented in mainland China that are more repressive, and if that really seeps over into Hong Kong, it will completely invalidate the whole concept of one country, two systems, which the Chinese have put forward as the basis for some kind of understanding with Taiwan and, and uh, other areas. And of course, the Taiwan public is deeply suspicious of this now. So if the, but if the Chinese government doesn't reject that principle, and it's unlikely that they're going to reject it, then there's got to be some kind of discussion about one, what one China, what one country, two systems actually means. And that will mean something that is still, in some ways, I think, more democratic or representative, not as much as you would see in the West, but some kind of sense that there is a preservation of the basic um, mores and norms that have existed in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, even if they are under the sovereign authority of China. So that actually is a pretty good segue to the next question. Um, a lot of the things, most of the things we've discussed so far have served as ammunition for commentators here in the United States to uh, basically decry the engagement strategy that was taken primarily, you know, specifically in the 90s up to now. Uh, and uh, allegedly part of that plan was more engagement with China, particularly on economics and trade, will eventually liberalize China and they can be a, a member of the community of nations as defined by uh, a very selective group of people in Washington, D.C. Um, 
is that true? Is that narrative accurate? You think that engagement in this sense has failed in some way? No, um, I am not sympathetic to this argument because I think it's really kind of uh, excessive and it, it really blurs a lot of issues and distorts a lot of things. Look, first of all, you have to understand that engagement is not a strategy. Engagement is a tool. Engagement is a description of the general relationship between China and the United States, which was that the two countries were going to interact with each other, engage with each other in ways that were other than what we had with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, the idea of, of peaceful coexistence, of getting along, but not really engaging with each other all that much. And here you have a, a China that is now deeply inv involved in the world community. It's got a huge impact on the global economy. Um, it has much more influence uh, in a variety of areas overseas than it's ever had before. And it has a lot of countries that are deeply engaged with China and in some ways very dependent on China economically. And so it's kind of ridiculous to say that that you can't have or shouldn't have engagement with this nation. I mean, it's a fact that you've got to be able to engage with China. And in fact, most recently now in, a, in his speech, the uh, latest speech by Vice President Pence, which I found very interesting, he, he went through the usual litany of, a, of criticizing why China is so bad. And then he ends up with a long uh, discussion at the end of how it is that we cannot contain China, we should not contain China, we don't have any um, uh, desire to overthrow the Chinese system, each country has its own system, and we need to engage with the Chinese engagement. He used that word, engage with the Chinese. So here you are again, you're back to engagement. I mean, it's you can't avoid it. So, I mean, my view is that in the past, Sure, there could have been things done by the United States at various times that might have been able to um, improve uh, China's domestic situation, perhaps, in some ways, or improve China's behavior in some ways in the international arena, probably more in the latter than the former. But I don't think that, that those actions, that the U.S. actions that it took in some sense uh, could have prevented a, a greater degree of party control and and uh, and repression that we see now. I don't see what those American policies would have been. Some people say, well, the United States should never have allowed China to enter the WTO, the World Trade Organization, because they've just taken advantage of it and, and run roughshod over the world and they've gone into all kinds of markets all over the world. But that is like turning that whole process on its head because what really happened in the WTO, the main consequence of it was it opened China's market to the West and to the outside. The Chinese did away with a huge amount of their barriers and tariffs as part of that process. And so you had the entrance of much of the world into China and then China's ability to trade with much of the world such that the World Bank has said since 2008, one third of global growth, global growth has been due to China. So I don't see how you can possibly look at those kinds of statistics and those issues and say, well, engagement has failed. And engagement was just simply a failure. I mean, it's just a cartoon. So that does, however, the, the facts of engagement make it a fairly sticky policy problem to, to think about how to attempt to respond to things you don't like a superpower doing. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's a, a recipe for how to encourage a superpower to behave better. I like to see that if I, <laughs> anyone has one, uh, send right. us an email. But, um, but, but given that 
China is so darn important to the U.S. economy, to our allies, to everyone's economy, and so on. Um, how do you stop them from detaining a million plus Uyghurs? Well, as I said before, the human rights issue. I mean, that's the thorniest issue for the United States. And you know, the short answer is you can't. I mean, you can't stop them from doing this. Uh, what you can do, I think, is you can try to marshal as much international um, condemnation or criticism of this as possible, because the Ch Chinese government is the Chinese government cares a lot about its image, about its reputation. Um, now, you may not think this in some cases when you read some of the stuff written in the West, you would think that the Chinese could care less and they're just running roughshod over the world. But in fact, the historic, uh, the record of US-China relations and China's relations with other countries as well suggests that they are often very sensitive to this issue. So if they feel that there is a strong degree of censure in the international community on this kind of issue, what you might be able to get is them bringing this whole process to a close or reducing it to a certain extent and then claiming that, well, the retraining has been successful. Things have happened that are good. There haven't been any further terrorist attacks of any major nature. And they say that now. They say that since we've been doing this program, there's been no, no attacks. So, I mean, if that continues, they can claim that, oh, well, this has worked. And they can back off it. And they will never, ever admit that it was because of international censure or pressure. But you could see that uh, there probably did have that kind of influence on them. If, if you can marshal that kind of broader global um, approbation. Moving away from China's domestic policies, what about China's role in the world and how that intersects with uh, perceived U.S. interests? My sense is that you know many of the hawkish criticisms of China amount to essentially a ca caricature of this country and the threat it poses to the United States. Uh, how do you assess this? Well, I'm, I'm not certainly someone who believes that China is the kind of adversary or enemy or existential threat that some people think. I mean, I was very much involved in this open letter that came out in July in the Washington Post to the president and the Congress that was signed at the time by 100 various uh, former foreign policy people, policy practitioners, China experts, et cetera. Now I think it's about 200 they've signed. And it, it really said you know, the, that the position of, of the Trump administration on China, it's more, more or less zero-sum kind of approach until these most recent speeches by Pence and, and Pompeo, that that approach is just simply counterproductive. It's not going to get where we want to go. It's not going to be supported by the rest of the international community. So I think China poses a significant challenge to the United States in several areas. It certainly poses a challenge in the area of economic competition and technology development. But that's a challenge that isn't, I don't think it's one of uh, this absolute zero-sum uh, winner take all, we're up, you're down kind of an argument, which is really extremely cartoonish, simplistic. It's more a question of 
what kind of technologies, what kind of economic behavior would be regarded as fair, would be regarded as reciprocal, uh, where we can share certain areas, where we need to hive off certain areas that are essential for national security and to define those very carefully and not just have this kind of blanket definition of virtually any technology as a national security technology. Therefore, we have to deny it to the Chinese because one day they just might use it against us. Um, sure, the Chinese are doing things in the cyber world um, that are not good. I mean, I talked to some people who are engaged in this world, and the Chinese have been very aggressive in going after a lot of cyber uh, secrets, if you will. On of the course, we're just the picture of docility over here in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just about to say, uh, of course, the United States' own capabilities in this area are very strong. And of course, very few people talk about that. They talk a lot about what China is doing. Of course, the US is doing a fair amount as well. The biggest criticism has been that the Chinese have focused their cyber espionage on commercial things, that they've tried to steal commercial secrets and the US doesn't do that. That argument, I think, is a little bit soft in some ways. If you look at the defense industrial complex, which is private industry after all, they have commercial interests, but they are helped, I would think, by cyber espionage uh, in various ways. But I do say I do think that China engages in this in a much broader way and, and probably has been um, well, it's been, I should think, more damaging because the United States has got more commercial capability and more commercial secrets in various areas. But over time, I think the Chinese could very well become more sensitive to protecting this themselves because they have secrets at stake that they want to be able to protect. So I would hope that we can move towards some kind of a cyber treaty in some cases with, in, in some instances with the Chinese and other countries as well that tries to get at the root of some of these problems. I think we need to to be more engaged in the Belt and Road Initiative, this big multi-country initiative across Eurasia that involves Chinese investment and support in building infrastructure and such. The US government has basically painted this as a strategic threat to the United States that we have to stay away from and encourage everybody to not be part of. I think that's a totally losing strategy. I think the United States needs to become vested in this part of this and, and encourage international oversight and involvement in this, much as has happened with the Asia Investment Infrastructure Investment Bank, which the Chinese started and which then became internationalized in a variety of ways. I think the BRI can maybe not go that far, but it can go some distance in trying to do that. Um, I think we have to have the understandings with the Chinese about certain issues to do with foreign investment in China that has to be more transparent. There has to be more predictability in this. I think the idea of the coerced technology transfers has been, it exists, but I think it's been overblown. I think that business interests in the in Western and American business interests in China, are they're focused on that to some degree, but it's not terribly high on their list writ large for the companies. I think they want transparency, predictability, and accountability, and they want a more or less more of a level playing field in various areas. And I think that's really what needs to be addressed on the Chinese side as well. And to be honest about trying to do that and be very transparent about what it does. Another big issue which needs to be addressed in the US-China situation is in the Western Pacific. If there's any area where there is a serious 
chance of conflict between the US and China and really serious strategic rivalry, it's in the Western Pacific. And it's being driven by the shift in the power relationship there. China is becoming, moving towards a parity power, an equal power with the United States in the maritime realm in the Western Pacific. This is basically altering what had been a 70-year period of American predominance in the maritime area in Western Pacific. How to deal with that, I think the United States still has not fully grasped. Yeah. I think it's, it's basically uh, reacting in a more reflexive way to say, the Chinese are trying to push us out of the region. We've got to double down on our defense spending. We've got to pull our allies into a more confrontational stance with the Chinese on this, and we've got to make this work. And I think that's a losing proposition as well, much like the BRI. Um, I think there needs to be a stable what, – what in fact is going to be a balance in Asia, there needs to be a stable balance. And that requires certain understandings about force deployments and certain understandings about some of the hot button issues in the area, all the way from Korea to Taiwan to the South China Sea. Today, we have very few real dialogues with the Chinese under the Trump administration in dealing with these strategic problems in the Western Pacific. There's almost nothing being discussed on this. And there was in the past, I think we have to take up these dialogues again and start talking about what it is that we really want in the Western Pacific, where we would like to see that region be in 20 years, and how we're going to get there. And that's going to have to include some degree of mutual compromise, some degree of mutual accommodation. And I say mutual accommodation with the Chinese. People hear this and they think it just means appeasement. And because of the climate in Washington, it's just become retreat. so toxic. It's retreat. Yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just retreat. We can't do it. So people just, you know, they just shut that off. And, and you can't really get a serious discussion about this because there's also a certain degree of uncertainty. People, people don't know where it could lead. What if you do start to engage in mutual accommodations on various issues with the Chinese? Um, where do you stop this sort of thing? And there's an assumption that the Chinese will take whatever they can get and they will not reciprocate. So if you've got that level of distrust, if you've got that level of hostility, of course it's not going to work. But that's the whole point. You don't want to get there. Yeah, I think you know one of the one of the troubling sort of recent trends for me is is a lot of writing by inside the Beltway think tankers and 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 such, where they're playing the old Cold War game of intention reading, and they're coming up with the answer that China is bent on global domination, just the way Hawks like to imagine the Soviets had this unbending, you know, and at least in that case, I'd give I'd give the Soviets at least a couple of decades where that's what they thought they were doing until they kind of figured out they weren't going to be able to do it. But I don't think, I, my reading is does not suggest that China thinks that that's the goal. I think they have more moderate goals. But if you can't agree, as you suggest, I mean, if you really do think China's bent on global domination and the Belt and Road is just proof and their you know, increasing military uh, capability is proof and the fact that they want all the fish in the South China Sea is proof, then you know it's going to be a really hard thing to convince people in DC to mutually accommodate on almost any score. And it's going to be easy, it seems to me, for events like the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or whatever the next mini crisis with Taiwan is or whatever to, to blow up into something really dangerous. I agree. I mean, I think that's I, what I've been saying for some time now is that as you get to the situation where you have a rough parity in the Western Pacific and you haven't really resolved these hot button issues or at least brought them under some greater degree of stability and you haven't really adjusted your military posture, then what's going to happen is that these issues 
revolving around the South China Sea claims, uh, U.S. military operations along China's uh, border, maritime border, uh, the Taiwan situation, etc. These things have the potential to become crises. As China becomes overconfident that it has more capability and more influence and it sees the United States as seeking to contain it and it wants to push back itself. And so it does that in these various hot button areas. And then by its own, in its own side, the United States overreacts because it wants to disabuse the Chinese and other countries of the idea that it's losing in relative power and it's not as predominant as it used to be. So you have this very unhealthy dynamic of, of overconfidence and overreaction that could really produce crises, that um, they're not going to necessarily result in war, but they could produce such damage in the relationship, in the global economy, um, that it could really change the situation that we're looking at today and make it much worse than, from, what it, from what it is now. So that's why I've been saying that China and the United States, along with the support of other countries, US allies in Asia need to get much more serious about crisis management efforts. Go beyond just simple operator-to-operator, military operators on the local scene, which is a lot of what our current agreements with the Chinese are about, avoiding an incident at sea between two operators. But a real crisis quickly escalates. It goes beyond that. You can't just prevent uh, escalation by having a few protocol understandings about how to engage on something. You can have a situation created where things begin to escalate and neither side is willing to compromise. And if you haven't got a clear understanding about how the, each side reads the other, how they interpret escalation or de-escalation, signaling, et cetera, um, then you're really dealing in, in, in you know, a lot of dangerous environments. So just to wrap up, you know, Trump has clearly taken a, a, a confrontational approach on trade, but maybe a less confrontational approach on the human rights and other stuff. Um, you know, not clear to me that there's a, what you'd call a coherent you know, strategy in the Trump administration for China. Um, but when you look at, at the crop of Democratic candidates, is there a sense, do you have a sense that there is a different approach on the on the Democratic side or are there some candidates or, or a candidate who you think might have a better uh, vision for that? Well, I don't think there's any one candidate who comes to mind as being out there with a very distinctive, different kind of take on all of this from what I've been describing. Um, to a great extent, most of them have thus far been focused on the trade and economic issues because this has so much resonance with the American public. And in that area, they've been critical of the tariffs as a blunt instrument, an overly blunt instrument, and I would completely agree with that. But they haven't really gone much beyond that. Um, they've also given um, certain levels of support to what's going on in Hong Kong, to the demonstrators, et cetera. Um, again, I don't see that as it's not leading to a sort of broader platform and understanding about how to deal with this massive country that is so complex and so different from any country we've had to deal with before. Uh, so I'm hoping that there's going to be more clarity coming out of these various um, candidates in the near future. Um, I really, at this point, have no single individual whom I would say is better than the others in terms of his, his or her take on China. Well, maybe we will learn more in uh, debates over the next few months. It'll be interesting to see. I don't think um, 
you know, I mean, this is the, the next great challenge for American foreign policy. So I'm sure we'll have to have you back on, on a regular basis to talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Uh, thanks to our producers, Cecil Sherman and Luis Aumada Abrigo, and to all of you for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.